0: Hello, and welcome back to Another World Audiobooks. So happy to have you here, continuing on with The War of the Worlds. I'd love to hear what you're uh, thinking of it so far. Get in touch with me, anotherworldaudiobooks at gmail.com. And yeah, uh, connect with uh, Sam Collins, the uh, awesome narrator who's guest-hosting on the podcast here. Uh, Make sure to check out the links down below for how to follow him and what he's doing. He's got a cool podcast, too, that you can check out. So um, yeah, make it happen. And without further ado, I'll give you the next chapters of The War of the Worlds.
1: CHAPTER Five, THE HEAT-RAY After the glimpse I had had of the Martians emerging from the cylinder in which they had come to earth from their planet, a kind of fascination paralysed my actions. I remained standing knee-deep in the heather, staring at the mound that hid them. I was a battleground of fear and curiosity. I did not dare to go back towards the pit, but I felt a passionate longing to peer into it. I began walking, therefore, in a big curve, seeking some point of vantage, and continually looking at the sand heaps that hid these newcomers to our earth. Once a leash of thin black wisps, like the arms of an octopus, flashed across the sunset and was immediately withdrawn, and afterwards a thin rod rose up, joint by joint, bearing at its apex a circular disc that spun with a wobbling motion. What could be going on there? Most of the spectators had gathered in one or two groups, one a little crowd towards Woking, the other a knot of people in the direction of Chobham. Evidently they shared my mental conflict. There were few near me. One man I approached, he was, I perceived, a neighbour of mine, though I did not know his name, and accosted. But it was scarcely a time for articulate conversation. "'What ugly brutes!' he said. "'Good God, what ugly brutes!' He repeated this over and over again. "'Did you see a man in the pit?' I said, but he made no answer to that. We became silent and stood watching for a time side by side, deriving, I fancy, a certain comfort in one another's company. Then I shifted my position to a little knoll that gave me the advantage of a yard or more of elevation, and when I looked for him presently he was walking towards Woking. The sunset faded to twilight before anything further happened. The crowd far away on the left towards Woking seemed to grow, and I heard now a faint murmur from it. The little knot of people towards Chobham dispersed. There was scarcely an intimation of movement from the pit. It was this, as much as anything, that gave people courage, and I suppose the new arrivals from Woking also helped to restore confidence. At any rate, as the dusk came on, a slow, intermittent movement upon the sands began. A movement seemed to gather force as the stillness of the evening about the cylinder remained unbroken. Vertical black figures in twos and threes would advance, stop, watch, and advance again, spreading out as they did so in a thin, irregular crescent that promised to enclose the pit in its attenuated horns. I, too, on my side, began to move towards the pit. Then I saw some cabmen, and others had walked boldly into the sandpits and heard the clatter of hoofs and the grind of wheels. I saw a lad trundling off the barrow of apples, and then, within thirty yards of the pit, advancing from the direction of Horsell, I noted little black knot of men, the foremost of whom was waving a white flag. This was the deputation. There had been a hasty consultation, and since the Martians were evidently, in spite of their repulsive forms, intelligent creatures, it had been resolved to show them By approaching them with signals that we, too, were intelligent. Flutter, flutter went the flag, first to the right, then to the left. It was too far for me to recognize anyone there, but afterwards I learned that Ogilvy, Stent, and Henderson were with others in this attempt at communication. This little group had, in its advance, dragged inward, so to speak, the circumference of the now almost complete circle of people, and a number of dim black figures followed it at discrete distances, Suddenly there was a flash of light and a quantity of luminous greenish smoke came out of the pit in three distinct puffs which drove up, one after the other, straight into the still air. This smoke, or flame perhaps would be the better word for it, was so bright that the deep blue sky overhead and the hazy stretches of brown common towards Chertsey set with black pine trees seemed to darken abruptly as these puffs arose and to remain the darker after their dispersal. At the same time a faint hissing sound became audible. Beyond the pit stood the little wedge of people with the white flag at its apex, arrested by these phenomena, a little knot of small vertical black shapes upon the black ground. As the green smoke arose, their faces flashed out pallid green and faded again as it vanished. Then slowly the hissing passed into a humming, into a long, loud droning noise. Slowly a humped shape rose out of the pit and the ghost of a beam of light seemed to flicker out from it. Forthwith flashes of actual flame, a bright glare leaping from one to another sprang from the scattered group of men. It was as if some invisible jet impinged upon them and flashed into white flame. It was as if each man was suddenly and momentarily turned to fire. Then, by the light of their own destruction, I saw them staggering and falling, and their supporters turning to run. I stood staring, not as yet realising that this was death leaping from man to man in that little distant crowd. All I felt was that it was something very strange, an almost noiseless and blinding flash of light, and a man fell headlong and lay still, and as the unseen shaft of heat passed over them, pine trees burst into fire, and every dry firs-bush became with one dull thud a mass of flames and far away, towards Knapp Hill, I saw the flashes of trees and hedges and wooden buildings suddenly set alight. It was sweeping round swiftly and steadily, this flaming death, this invisible, inevitable sword of heat. I perceived it coming towards me by the flashing bushes it touched, and was too astounded and stupefied to stir. I heard the crackle of fire in the sandpits and the sudden squeal of a horse that was as suddenly stilled, then it was as if an invisible yet intensely heated finger were drawn through the heather between me and the Martians, and all along a curving line beyond the sandpits, the dark ground smoked and crackled. Something fell with a crash far away to the left, where the road from Woking Station opens out onto the common. Forthwith, the hissing and humming ceased, and the black, dome-like object sank slowly out of sight into the pit. All this happened with such swiftness that I stood motionless dumbfounded and dazzled by the flashes of light. Had that death swept through a full circle, it must inevitably have slain me in my surprise. But it passed and spared me, and left the night about me suddenly dark and unfamiliar. The undulating commons seemed now dark almost to blackness, except where its roadways lay grey and pale under the deep blue sky of the early night. It was dark and suddenly void of men. Overhead, The stars were mustering, and in the west the sky was still a pale, bright, almost greenish-blue. The tops of the pine trees and the roofs of Horsell came out sharp and black against the western afterglow. The Martians and their appliances were altogether invisible, save for that thin mast upon which their restless mirror wobbled. Patches of bush and isolated trees here and there smoked and glowed still, and the houses towards Woking Station were sending up spires of flame into the stillness of the evening air. Nothing was changed save for that and a terrible astonishment. The little group of black specks with the flag of white had been swept out of existence, and the stillness of the evening, so it seemed to me, had scarcely been broken. It came to me that I was upon this dark common, helpless, unprotected, and alone. Suddenly, like a thing falling upon me from without— came fear. With an effort I turned and began a stumbling run through the heather. The fear I felt was no rational fear, but a panic terror not only of the Martians, but of the dusk and stillness all about me. Such an extraordinary effect in unmanning me it had that I ran weeping silently as a child might do. Once I had turned, I did not dare to look back. I remember I felt an extraordinary persuasion that I was being played with that presently, when I was upon the very verge of safety, this mysterious death, as swift as the passage of light, would leap after me from the pit about the cylinder, and strike me down. Chapter 6 The Heat-Ray in the Chobham Road It is still a matter of wonder how the Martians are able to slay men so swiftly and so silently. Many think that in some way they are able to generate an intense heat in a chamber of practically absolute non-conductivity. This intense heat they project in a parallel beam against any object they choose by means of a polished parabolic mirror of unknown composition, much as the parabolic mirror of a lighthouse projects a beam of light. But no one has absolutely proved these details. However it is done, it is certain that a beam of heat is the essence of the matter. Heat And invisible instead of visible light. Whatever is combustible flashes into flame at its touch, lead runs like water, it softens iron, cracks and melts glass, and when it falls upon water, incontinently that explodes into steam. That night nearly forty people lay under the starlight about the pit, charred and distorted beyond recognition and all night long the common from Horsall to Maybury was deserted and brightly ablaze. The news of the massacre probably reached Chobham, Woking, and Ottershaw about the same time. In Woking the shops had closed when the tragedy happened, and a number of people, shop people and so forth, attracted by the stories they had heard, were walking over the Horsall Bridge and along the road between the hedges that run out at last upon the common. You may imagine the young people brushed up after the labours of the day, and making this novelty, as they would make any novelty, the excuse for walking together and enjoying a trivial flirtation. You may figure to yourself the hum of voices along the road in the gloaming. As yet, of course, few people in Woking even knew that the cylinder had opened, though poor Henderson had sent a messenger on a bicycle to the post office with a special wire to an evening paper. As these folks came out twos and threes upon the open, they found little knots of people talking excitedly and peering at the spinning mirror over the sandpits, and the newcomers were, no doubt, soon infected by the excitement of the occasion. By half-past eight, when the deputation was destroyed, there may have been a crowd of three hundred people or more at this place, besides those who had left the road to approach the Martians nearer. There were three policemen too, one of whom was mounted doing their best under the instructions from Stent to keep the people back and to deter them from approaching the cylinder. There was some booing from those more thoughtless and excitable souls to whom a crowd is always an occasion for noise and horseplay. Stent and Ogilvy, anticipating some possibilities of a collision, had telegraphed from Horsell to the barracks as soon as the Martians emerged, for the help of a company of soldiers to protect these creatures from violence. After that they returned to lead that ill-fated advance. The description of their death, as it was seen by the crowd, tallies very closely with my own impressions the three puffs of green smoke, the deep humming note, and the flashes of flame. But that crowd of people had a far narrower escape than mine. Only the fact that a hummock of heathery sand intercepted the lower part of the heat-ray saved them. Had the elevation of the parabolic mirror been a few yards higher, none could have lived to tell the tale. They saw the flashes and the men falling, and an invisible hand, as it were, lit the bushes as it hurried towards them through the twilight. Then with a whistling note that rose above the droning of the pit, the beams swung close over their heads, lighting the tops of the beech trees that lined the road, and splitting the bricks, smashing the windows, firing the window frames, and bringing down in crumbling ruin a portion of the gable of the house nearest the corner. In the sudden thud, hiss, and glare of the igniting trees, the panic-stricken crowd seems to have swayed hesitatingly for some moments. Sparks and burning twigs began to fall into the road, and single leaves like puffs of flame. Hats and dresses caught fire. Then came a crying from the common. There were shrieks and shouts, and suddenly a mounted policeman came galloping through the confusion with his hands clasped over his head, screaming. They're coming, a woman shrieked, and incontinently everyone was turning and pushing at those behind in order to clear their way to Woking again. They must have bolted as blindly as a flock of sheep. Where the road grows narrow and black between the high banks, the crowd jammed, and a desperate struggle occurred. All that crowd did not escape. Three persons at least, two women and a little boy, were crushed and trampled there, and left to die amid the terror and the darkness. Chapter 7. How I Reached Home For my own part, I remember nothing of my flight except the stress of blundering against trees, and stumbling through the heather all about me gathered the invisible terrors of the martians that pitiless sword of heat seemed whirling to and fro flourishing overhead before it descended and smote me out of life i came into the road between the crossroads and horsel and ran along this to the crossroads at last i could go no further i was exhausted with the violence of my emotion and of my flight and i staggered and fell by the wayside that was near the bridge that crosses the canal by the gasworks I fell and lay still. I must have remained there some time. I sat up, strangely perplexed. For a moment, perhaps, I could not clearly understand how I came there. My terror had fallen from me like a garment. My hat had gone and my collar had burst away from its fastener. A few minutes before there had only been three real things before me, the immensity of the night and space and nature, my own feebleness and anguish, and the near approach of death. "'Now it was as if something turned over "'and the point of view altered abruptly. "'There was no sensible transition "'from one state of mind to the other. "'I was immediately the self of every day again, "'a decent, ordinary citizen. "'The silent common, the impulse of my flight, "'the starting flames, were as if they had been in a dream. "'I asked myself had these latter things indeed happened. "'I could not credit it. "'I rose and walked unsteadily up the steep incline of the bridge.' My mind was blank wonder. My muscles and nerves seemed drained of their strength. I dare say I staggered drunkenly. A head rose over the arch and the figure of a workman carrying a basket appeared. Beside him ran a little boy. He passed me, wishing me a good night. I was minded to speak to him, but I did not. I answered his greeting with a meaningless mumble and went on over the bridge. Over the Maybury Arch, a train, a billowing tumult of white, violet smoke, and a long caterpillar of lighted windows went flying south. Clatter, clatter, clap, rap, and it had gone. A dim group of people talked in the gate of one of the houses in the pretty little row of gables that was called Oriental Terrace. It was all so real and so familiar, and that behind me. It was frantic, fantastic. Such things, I told myself, could not be. Perhaps I am a man of exceptional moods. I do not know how far my experience is common. At times I suffer from the strangest sense of detachment from myself and the world about me. I seem to watch it all from the outside, from somewhere inconceivably remote, out of time, out of space, out of the stress and tragedy of it all. This feeling was very strong upon me that night. Here was another side to my dream. But the trouble was the blank incongruity of this serenity. "'and the swift death flying yonder not two miles away. "'There was a noise of business from the gasworks, "'and the electric lamps were all alight. "'I stopped at the group of people. "'What news from the Common?' said I. "'There were two men and a woman at the gate. Eh? said one of the men, turning. "'What news from the Common?' I said. "'Ain't you just been there?' asked the men. "'People seem fair silly about the Common,' said the woman over the gate.' What's it all about? Haven't you heard of the men from Mars? Said I. The creatures from Mars? Quite enough, said the woman over the gate. Thanks. And all three of them laughed. I felt foolish and angry. I tried and found I could not tell them what I had seen. They laughed again at my broken sentences. You'll hear more yet, I said, and went on to my home. I startled my wife at the doorway. So haggard was I. I went into the dining room, sat down, drank some wine, and so soon as I could collect myself sufficiently I told her the things I had seen. The dinner, which was a cold one, had already been served and remained neglected on the table while I told my story. There is one thing, I said, to allay the fears I had aroused. They are the most sluggish things I ever saw crawl. They may keep the pit and kill people who come near them, but they cannot get out of it. But the horror of them... Don't, dear, said my wife, knitting her brows and putting her hand on mine. Poor Ogilvy, I said, to think he may be lying dead there. My wife at least did not find my experience incredible. When I saw how deadly white her face was, I ceased abruptly. They may come here, she said again and again. I pressed her to take wine and tried to reassure her. They can scarcely move, I said. I began to comfort her and myself by repeating all that Ogilvy had told me of the impossibility of the Martians establishing themselves on the earth. In particular, I laid stress on the gravitational difficulty. On the surface of the earth, the force of gravity is three times what it is on the surface of Mars. A Martian, therefore, would weigh three times more than on Mars, albeit his muscular strength would be the same. His own body would be a cope of lead to him, therefore. That, indeed, was the general opinion." Both the Times and the Daily Telegraph, for instance, insisted on it the next morning, and both overlooked, just as I did, two obvious modifying influences. The atmosphere of the Earth, we now know, contains far more oxygen, or far less argon, whichever way one likes to put it, than does Mars. The invigorating influences of this excess of oxygen upon the Martians indisputably did much to counterbalance the increased weight of their bodies, and, in the second place, we all overlooked the fact that such mechanical intelligence as the Martians possessed was quite able to dispense with muscular exertion at a pinch. But I did not consider these points at the time, and so my reasoning was dead against the chances of the invaders. With wine and food, the confidence of my own table, and the necessity of reassuring my wife, I grew by insensible degrees courageous and secure. "'They have done a foolish thing,' said I, fingering my wine-glass. They are dangerous because, no doubt, they are mad with terror. Perhaps they expected to find no living things—certainly no intelligent living things." "'A shell in the pit,' said I. "'If the worst comes to the worst, we'll kill them all.' The intense excitement of the events had no doubt left my perceptive powers in a state of erethism. I remember that dinner-table with extraordinary vividness even now. My dear wife's sweet, anxious face peering at me from under the pink lampshade. The white cloth, with its silver and glass table furniture, for in those days even philosophical writers had many little luxuries, the crimson-purple in my glass are photographically distinct. At the end of it I sat tempering nuts with a cigarette, regretting Ogilvy's rashness and denouncing the short-sighted timidity of the Martians. So some respectable dodo in the Mauritius might have lauded it in his nest and discussed the arrival of that shipful of pitiless sailors in want of animal food. We will peg them to death tomorrow, my dear. I did not know it, but that was the last civilized dinner I was to eat for very many strange and terrible days.'
0: I know that I'm always like you should share the podcast but uh, it really is. There's there's so many uh, podcasts out there that one of the best ways for people to discover new podcasts is by having friends that they know tell them about it. So um, if you are enjoying this, it is a bunch of free audiobooks and they're all awesome quality, great uh, voice actors, the, the Christmas Carol audio dramas in there too, all for free on this podcast feed. So if you want to share it with other people, that makes just such a world of difference in helping the podcast grow. And it's not about growing as much as it is. It's about just being able to continue to do this. So uh, without listeners, (laughs) the podcast doesn't make a whole lot of sense. So uh, spread the word. Tell other people about the podcast, and I would really, really appreciate it. Thank you so much to our patrons for making the podcast possible. If you want to check that out, go to anotherworldaudiobooks.com and click on Become a Patron. It's a great way to support the show. A couple dollars a month uh, just makes a huge difference in just allowing us to be able to continue to bring you all this awesome content. So I appreciate it so much. Thank you, and we'll talk to you next week.